Hello. And welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We are here. It is the end of July already somehow. I don't know how that happened. And for our liver tea this week, we have got to spill some liver tea on the fact that we went to see one of our favorite bands ever. The Bare Naked Woo! Ladies, and it was awesome. Oh my we God. saw them last week. They came to Philly on what, Je- July? 20, no, the 12th. Right, July 12th, and they were fabulous, and we made t-shirts, so you may have seen <laughs> us at the oh, Bare Naked Ladies concert. I would love to concert. know if anybody, any listeners did. Yeah, if you saw us, we were wearing very distinctive homemade <laughs> shirts that said fully clothed ladies on the front, and then on the back it said, it's been two years since we bought these seats, because it was. We it bought was. the seats two years oh. ago before COVID hit. And the show was postponed two years. Crazy. And we finally got to go last week. So it was so much fun. Oh, my God. Oh, we had the time of our lives. It it was a bucket list item. Oh, for sure. And it was so great because we were originally seated up in the nosebleeds. (laughs) Like five rows from the back. Oh, my God. And in the Met, which is the venue, and in Philadelphia, I mean, the the Met is a really nice, comfortable venue where... Every seat is pretty much a good seat. True. Yeah, but we were still like very far back. <laughs> yeah. And so this really nice guy, this employee of the Met, like must have taken pity on us. And he <laughs> saw us and he was like, follow me and don't say nothing. And he just yeah. like took us a complete like echelon down. Oh my God. So that we were in these like awesome, really close seats. So shout out that guy. If made our nights like <laughs> you're listening to a podcast if you happen to come across this for god knows why for but. god knows what reason but yeah made our night we got to see one week we got to stand like on the little balcony in the kind of box when when that was playing it was <laughs> we were the only ones dancing which shocked me still i think people were kind of winding down by that time at the night but yeah it was a long show and it they was. they had um Two openers. Yeah, Toad the Wet Sprocket and Gin Blossom. So mm-hmm. it was like a very 90s night. Yes. And I think, you know, by the time that they got out there and by the time they did their big hits, it was pretty late in the night. It so, was. Although there were, there were two ladies who <laughs> we think looked like us in yes. 20 years. Um, oh. who were morbidly obese and just dancing their hearts out. Yeah, so that was it. nice. You know, it was good to see that. It was a good crowd, though. It was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. So if anybody saw us wearing our fully clothed ladies <laughs> shirts, they were they made quite the uproar, if I yeah, do say so myself. I, I did a lot not of people, expect. I don't know. I didn't really. I guess I just didn't think about it. But like, yeah, we got a lot of compliments, which was so cool. We got so many compliments. So many people were coming up to us and it was really great. So yeah, we'll have those memories forever. And it was so, so much fun. So it was a good one. Yeah. If you're also a Bare Naked Ladies fan or if you also saw the show, it it was pretty life changing. It was. Please reach out and tell us what your experience was if you saw it, too, because we had the time of our lives. We did. We did. It was great. But taking... On to people that were not having the time of (laughs) their lives. Exactly. (laughs) These people, today's topic is a complete... (laughs) Actually, and you could say, it's been 25 years since I saw Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, not to make light of it. Not... God. (laughs) Not 
to make like But yeah, these the, the topic today is completely different than anything we've ever done. I hadn't even heard about this. You were the one, as yeah. usual, who well, came up with the brilliant idea. Finding random random things I watch on YouTube. Yeah, it's just, it's a really unusual story, and you might not have ever heard of this before, because I didn't, and it's just really, really interesting, um, and an interesting reflection on the North Korean government, but basically, all these Japanese citizens got abducted by the North Korean government, by these agents who worked for the government, And it was a six-year-long period from 1977 to 1983. And these people just, like, were taken. Yeah. Just, like, and you got to think about it, 70s and 80s, like, there's no mass communication. Well, there's mass communication. But there's no, like, you know, social media and stuff like that. And I just feel like there's so much more disconnect that a lot of, in a lot of these cases, it was just, like, these people were just plucked off the face of the earth. Yeah, well, and there was probably no real way to monitor people and to make sure that you knew what happened to them. Like, when people disappeared, they really disappeared. Yeah. Because there's no internet presence or anything to follow them. Like, if you didn't see it happen, if nobody saw you get abducted, what happened? Like, Yeah, a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it. Does it make a sound? Who knows? No. So, really weird. We're talking about 17 citizens that we know of. Right. Eight men, nine women. And these are the folks who were officially recognized by the Japanese government as missing. But who knows, people? It could be hundreds of others. I bet it is. Truthfully. Wild. Um, And North Korea itself only admitted to abducting 13 Japanese citizens. So, not even the 17 that we know to have been abducted. Right. So we're talking about who knows how many people really fell victim to this scheme. And there's a ton of testimonies that people from other countries were also kidnapped. But the Japanese abductions might be the most well-known. Yeah, or at least the the best documented given the fact that North Korea actually admitted to at least 13. So, Which is a miracle in and of itself that they yeah. actually got them to give that up. It is, it is. So... Back in the 1970s, most of these individuals were abducted from the coastal areas of Japan, which like when first looking into this, I was like, that's kind of like why. But I guess it does kind of make sense um, because a lot of them were abducted by boat, which is kind of interesting, which is also like harkening back to other things like slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Like, really, you're going to come in in a boat and just whip these people away and put them on a boat and take them from their homes and their country country. yeah it's kind of it's kind of ringing a weird bell there yeah it's not good i mean definitely not good right so most of these i mean they were just average citizens mostly in their 20s the youngest was actually 13 and that's actually the main story that we're going to get into tonight but the reasons for the abductions were a couple different ones One was to teach the Japanese language and culture, so like behaviors and whatnot, to these North Korean spy schools. Which crazy saying there's a spy school. I don't know. North Korean spy school is like woo. Reminds me of like Spy Kids, but like in a real (laughs) and a scary way. Yeah, in a bad way. Um, The older abductees, though, the purpose of you know their kidnap was really to assume their identities so using these identities to kind of infiltrate japan which is so creepy can you imagine somebody gets taken 
and then someone else assumes their identity oh, I know. and just pretends that they're that person oh. who went missing and they're in society with their people. Like, what? I know. That is the creepiest thing ever. It also gives me, like, Inception vibes. Mm. Like, you are just going to, like, pick a person and take on become their... Become them. Yeah, become them. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's really creepy. Um, this other reasoning I didn't see much about, but it was mentioned that it was suspected to be that some women, women were abducted to become wives to a group of North Korean-based Japanese terrorists. Now, this is just speculated. Again, I don't think this is necessarily the main reason for most of these abductions. And then, again, the girl that we're going to talk about later, there could have been some situations where your classic, you know, <laughs> killed for a drug type situation. Right. Where you see some activity you weren't supposed to and you get killed or, in this case, abducted for it. Right. Um, so for a really long time, North Korea denied the abductions and so did the, so did Japan. Many believed that these were just conspiracy theories. Um, Japanese parents tried to pressure the Japanese government, but for the longest time, the government just did not take any action. Gosh, which is really crazy oh. that even the Japanese government couldn't fully get behind this or believe it. Right. So in 2002... Now, let me just say, from the 70s and 80s <laughs> to 2002... Right. Huge gap here, okay? 30 years. 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. So we fast forward to 2002. We're jumping forward. The Japanese Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi visited North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, the well-known guy, for the first Japan-North Korea summit. Sounds promising. And North Korea, at this summit, admitted to abducting 13 people and provided death certificates for eight individuals. Awful. That's a ton of people. Yeah. And, and it, also, like, hey, sorry we stole these people. By the right. way, they died. Here you go. Right. So Japan, at this time, was questioning the legitimacy of these certificates. Because, first of all, you stole these people, and now you're going to tell me they did? The like, majority of them are dead? Like, okay. What the hell? So on October 15, 2002, the five remaining victims were allowed to return to Japan, but there was a caveat here, people. It was only under the condition that they would return to North Korea in two weeks. Can you imagine? Can that? you imagine? So you were stolen from your home country. You were there in this new strange land for 30 years, and then they're like, okay, we're going to let you go. little vacation to your home country. Exactly. We'll send you back, but just for two weeks, and now you're coming back to mm -hmm. North Korea. And it's also not like some cushy vacation or right. anything. It's North Korea. Right. So you're just going to whip them back into the frenzy that they were already in? Like, what a nightmare. Oh, it's like, awful. you may as well not even let them go back. So the victims' identities were confirmed by DNA, dental records, and fingerprints to be who they were claimed to be. Because I would not put it past them with all this crazy stuff to, you know. Make some lies up. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And the Japanese government at this point then told North Korea that the victims would not be returning. No shit. Yeah. And thanks, <laughs> Japanese government, for, like, yeah, kicking finally. up and claiming your people back. This God. is a nightmare. Are you kidding me? So North Korea said, you know what, guys, this is a violation of the agreement that we have and refused further conversations with Japan at this point. So North Korea is crazy. Yeah, pretty much. If we didn't already think that. 
here we go. Right? Like, if you didn't think Kim Jong-il was a nutter butter, here you go. Yes. So, May 22nd, 2004, the Prime Minister of Japan visited North Korea for the second time. And at this point, this was something I didn't think about initially with the, the victims and survivors. Um, a couple months later, in July 2004, some of the some of the children of the victims were allowed to reunite with their families in Japan, which is Gee. really crazy. Yeah, so what a concession. Yeah. These were kids that were born in North Korea. And thank, I mean, thank God, like it still was two years later, though. So I can only imagine how you know, scary and confusing that was for those kids during that time period. Right. Um, and just to give a little background on some of the different stories. So in 2004, another one of the victim's husbands uh, was actually able to escape North Korea with his two children and finally rejoin her as well. And then we get into weirder stuff in November of 2004. North Korea returned the cremated remains of two people. So these were... Apparently, the remains of Megumi Yokoda and Kaoru Matsuki. And these were two of the individuals that North Korea claimed died after they were abducted. But here we go again. DNA testing later confirmed that these were not the victims. Shocking. Gosh. Yeah. So since then, there hasn't been a ton other, you know, of other progress on information or interactions with North Korea. Gosh, well, what a weird thing. And obviously, North Korea is a locked box on this one. And they can't even keep a straight answer as to who these victims were. No. Like, you're just plucking people off the face of the earth, taking them away for 30 years. And then you God. can't even tell us who the hell they were. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Like, keep some notes, people. Ugh. So we're going to go into depth into a few cases, but we're going to give a brief overview of the other three abductees who returned to Japan in 2002. So we'll hit on these three little stories briefly, and then we're going to go into kind of our main topic for the day. Um, and first up is Kaoru Haisuki and Yukiko Okudo. So, Hasuki and Okuda were abducted together on July 31st, 1978 from Nagata in northern Japan. At that time, one was a 20-year-old student and the other was a 22-year-old cosmetologist and they were on a date walking along the beach. At this time, they were attacked by a group of four men and taken to a boat in separate bags. Ugh. Can you imagine you're on a date, you're walking oh on the beach, like I like long walks on the beach, whatever. Not anymore. And then, yeah, talk <laughs> about life ruiner over here. You get snagged in a bag. Yeah. Like some kind of an animal oh. and taken away. Terrifying. So the two got married on May 15th, 1980. And now the couple has a son. One of the other abductees, Hitomi Soga, was abducted from the secluded northern Japanese island of Sado, sadomasochistic. Um, <laughs> oh, we're awful. Um, Soga was a former nurse, and after she returned to Japan, she told officials that also she was grabbed from behind by three men, put in a bag. They love these bags. And taken into a boat. <laughs> like, why the bag, though? You're taking them to North Korea on water. What are Ugh. they going to say? Like, 
oh, like I saw some sharks. Like I don't right exactly. You take a left at what? Like no, <laughs> you take a left at the left shark. I mean, you're not gonna get out of there anyway. So why the bag? Exactly. I, I don't uh, get that yeah, at all. It doesn't make sense to me. Maybe just to I don't contain know. them. I don't know. Yeah, or just mess with their minds or something. Ugh. Yeah, but. Um, in 1980, she married a former American soldier. See, this is where it's interesting, too, when they get married over there and start a life over there. Right. It's like, what? where do you really live? Like, what's your home country then? Right. So she, she married him. Um, he was actually stationed in South Korea and listed as a deserter. So he fled to North Korea. Not good. Not the best place to flee to. No. Why would you? Um, <laughs> but they had two daughters together. Cute. And... <laughs> <laughs> the next couple we're going to talk about is Fuki Hamamoto and her now husband, Yasushi Chimura. And they're very similar to Kaoru and Yakiko's story. Um, they disappeared on July 7th, 1978, near the coast of Obama. I know. Believe it or not, that's not a typo, people. They were both 23 at the time and engaged. And again, they decided to take a stroll and Ugh. look at the stars Avoid along it. a secluded beach. Just, you didn't learn from Jaws that you shouldn't take a walk <laughs> in the dark by the oh. beach. No thanks. Nope. As they were sitting down, they were grabbed from behind. I bet you guys are never going to guess this. Oh. And stuffed into separate bags. No. Meanwhile, these men must be so strong if they're carrying people away in bags. Do you I know. know how heavy that is? Well, one of them's a man every time, pretty much. Exa- like, pretty much. Which, like, wow. Yeah. So four men put them onto a North Korean boat along the shore. They were transferred from a small rubber dinghy to a small motorboat to eventually a fishing ship on their journey to North Korea. So this is a nightmare. Well, also you're like in a bag and they're just like throwing you from boat to boat. It's a miracle. They survive. It is. And after they arrived, they were completely separated from each other for 16 months and told that the other had been sent back to Japan. Why? I I don't know. From looking for each other, I guess? Well, I guess maybe to, to force them to assimilate, you know, if they're not holding out hope that their fiance is still here still in another room, somewhere. you know. God. Yeah. Well, they were shocked because later on they were reunited and they were taken to teach the Japanese language and culture to spies over there. And they were allowed finally to marry in May 1980. They had three children, a daughter and two sons. Meanwhile, none of these people are clearly dissuaded from starting their families based on this hideous kidnapping. Like, wouldn't you be like, hey, I don't really want my child to be subjected to the same injustice that I had to deal with. What if my kid gets shoved into a bag? I know. I couldn't imagine, like... Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's a hard situation because I guess maybe they've just kind of given up and said, like, this is my life now. I'm going to make the best of it. But I agree. Bringing children into it if you can help it. It's weird. I wouldn't want to. No, me neither. And what's crazy, too, is the children were apparently never told about their heritage, their background, that they were even Japanese. Could you imagine that? Like, finding out years later? that Right. Like, my gosh. And... You know, it's said that, I guess, folks over there can probably tell very easily, like, you know, they can eyeball another person and say, oh, that's a Japanese person, that's a Korean person, whatever. Like, I wonder if they ever were singled out as looking Japanese or anything like that. Can you imagine if they were ever made fun of or, like, something like that? And they're like, no, I'm not Japanese, you know, later to find out they actually are. They totally are. Exactly. Exactly. 
So when they came back for the initial visit to Japan in 2002, the one we talked about, they left their children, who at the time were ages 15 to 21, in North Korea, leaving their oldest with some money. And at that point, they just told them that they were going on a trip and they'd be back in about 10 days. Oh, yeah. No big deal. Just the biggest trip of our lifetime. Exactly. And like, we're going back to our home country for the first time in 30 years. And literally, like, you just aren't going to hear about it at all because you don't even know you're Japanese. order a pizza if you need it. Right. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty crazy stories there. But one of the ones that I think kind of has been really well documented and is also really crazy is that of Megumi Yokota. She was the youngest of these victims that we mentioned. She was just 13 when she was kidnapped. And um, just to clarify, she was not one of the ones that was returned because she was said to have passed away in in North Korea. So sad. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is a tragic story. She was kidnapped on November 15th, 1977 in the coastal city of Niigata. She was walking with two friends home from school with her backpack and badminton racket. Aww, I so know. Sweet. Just like a, a sad little, little middle kid. schooler. Yeah. So she said goodbye to her friends and was just 800 feet from her from her home, which is Ugh. It's like when they say most accidents happen, like, right near your house. Yeah, it, it really is crazy how many things, you know, how many of these cases we see, like, they're down the block, and it's like, how can that happen so close to home? Right. So her parents were, you know, very attentive, began to worry, and then finally by 7, her mom went to the middle school to see if she was there, and she was half expecting to just run into her on the walk there. When she got there, the school's night watchman told her that Megumi and her friends had left a long time ago. Meanwhile, creepy. Like, you got this weird old henchman I being know, like, like, hey. Yeah, she left a while Oh, Megumi? Now. I know her and her friends. Yeah, that's weird, even yeah. though I'm an old man, but mm-hmm. okay. Yep, just spending my night here at the middle school. Yep. Hmm. And so police were really great. They got on the case right away. They had tracker dogs going out searching for her. They started looking in a nearby forest. And her mother, oddly, went to the beach to look for her. And unbeknownst to her at the time, she actually had the right location, but was just too late to find her daughter. That's so maddening. Yeah. It's it's sad to look back on years later to be like, I was at the beach. I went to the beach. I was right there. Yeah. You were already gone. Like near miss. Oh, awful. So North Korean agents, we, we later find out a lot of Megumi's story, but North Korean agents had kidnapped her. And taken her, shockingly, onto a boat to North Korea. Was she in a bag? I Probably. actually don't think a bag was involved in this oh, one. Wow. because first one, bagless. Yeah, we'll learn it wasn't, wasn't necessarily planned. But um, again, the police continued to search for her and really never gave up. There were apparently 3,000 days of searching, oh. but just no information. Like we said, these individuals just kind of like alien abduction style, just yeah. like you're gone. Gone into thin air. Yeah, and obviously her parents were devastated by this situation. Yeah, that must be so crazy to just have no answers at all. None. And have no clue, like, where the heck your kid goes. Yeah, yeah, very sad. Gosh, so at some point we learned that Megumi was still alive. A North Korean spy who defected in 1993 told tales of a woman who matched Megumi's description. And... 
as a spy, he would be someone, you know, who would know this kind of thing. Right. And he said in 1988, a senior spy master, one of Megumi's kidnappers, told him what happened to her. And it sounded like her kidnapping actually was unplanned and a huge mistake, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. Like, with all of this going on... I mean, it does seem very reckless and, like, these mistakes should be happening more often. True. But, like, my God, it's a 13-year-old girl and you just, like, screwed up and ruined her whole life? That's a big mistake. That's a huge mistake. So two agents were finishing up a spy mission in Nagata and had been waiting on the beach for their boat to pick them up. They realized at the time that Megumi had spotted them from the road And they were worried that she had seen them and they had been discovered. So they grabbed her. It's typical, like, you saw something you weren't supposed to see, like we talked about. exactly. And it was dark and Megumi was tall for her age. So they didn't realize that they were taking a child. So sad. That would have happened to you. Oh, my God. A middle schooler. Being a tall, yeah. Yeah, it would have happened. Marfan's esque childhood over here (laughs) (laughs) esque childhood so you know it's so sad she got locked in this pitch black storage room on the boat which sounds a lot like the Wayfair controversy oh and I was gonna say Miss Trunchbull oh that too the chokey yeah and get this the trip to North Korea was 40 oh hours God. long. That is your work week, guys. Yeah, that's, that's so That's a true. long time to be locked oh in a pitch black storage room. Now, granted, we would probably rather be locked in a pitch true. black storage room than our own office. Very true. But you get it. Yeah. So when they let her out, her poor little fingernails were torn and bloody because she tried to claw oh. her way out. So, you know, clearly this tells you she was quite the fighter and was trying to do anything to get loose. And the agents who took her were punished. They were totally chastised for their poor judgment, which they should have been. Oh my like, God. are you dumb? Big mistake. I'm sorry. Even if you want to do your little spy terrible stuff, this is like extra. A huge misjudgment. Exactly. So then the government didn't know what to do with her. They were like, we got this kid now on our hands. Right. What the hell? And she cried for her mother. She refused to eat, which, of course unnerved the people who were in charge of watching her and her minders tried to calm her down and promised they lied to her basically that if she learned fluent korean she'd get sent home and instead she ended up getting forced to work as a spy trainer at an elite spy school again spy kids yes where she taught japanese and different you know behaviors that japanese people had yeah, it's it's just insane to me. I don't know. They're really recruiting for these spy schools for teachers here. Yeah, right? Sheesh. Oh, yeah. So more information eventually comes out in 1997. Megumi's parents were contacted just out of the blue by a Japanese agent who had actually been investigating Pyongyang, the whole area and situation, for a decade. He said that he had information to believe that Megumi was still alive. And this became kind of the final push for the family to decide to go public with Megumi's story. Um, They went to the media, you know, did a lot of kind of press tour, whatever. But they were concerned that speaking out and telling her story would put her in danger and North Korea could possibly kill her because of this. Um, Yeah, that would be terrifying. Oh, my God. Because you see how ruthless they were and how stupid and flippant they were about taking a child from her home. Yeah. Like... Clearly, they wouldn't mind just, you know, 
offing somebody because they saw too much. Right. Yeah. They don't. They just don't care. It's like too much of an issue. All right. We'll kill you. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. Scary. So this actually became instrumental in getting the Japanese government to finally admit that several abductions were true. And it led to seven of the families of other victims forming a support group called the Association of Families of Victims Kidnapped by North Korea. Wow, that's wonder a what it does. Twister. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so these families continued to tell their stories and pressure the government to take action. We then get to 2002, which we already talked about, where the Prime Minister of Japan met with Kim Jong Il, admitted to the 13 kidnappings said eight had died and sadly he said megumi was one of them that had died over there in korea oh yeah so her parents were obviously devastated to get this news what a shame so some interesting you know fun clear lies from north korea (laughs) on some of the ways that these eight victims died so here we go um one was drowning great Choking on the fumes from a broken coal heater. Like what? Okay, that's oddly specific. Yeah, very. Also, <laughs> like, how did... Can you imagine the autopsy of that particular oh, person? Like, how the hell did they narrow it down to that? And it had to be a coal heater. Got right, it. of course. And it was broken, it was broken, by the way. Definitely. Here's one very suspicious. A heart attack in a woman of 27. Yikes. Yeah. That's even in poorer health than me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they wouldn't be shocked if it was me, but, you know. <laughs> um, here's another one. This is obviously two car accidents in a country where private citizens rarely own cars. Oh, weird. So highly unlikely, even if you're on the road with a car, that you're going to see another car. I don't know. Um, and then... North Korea also claimed it could not provide the remains for any of these individuals as floods had washed away almost all of their graves. Which, like, what? So basically you pretty much liquidated them and then you physically are claiming that they were liquidated as well and yes. washed away. Like, okay. Sorry. Likely story. Here's, here's an elaborate story choking on, you know, fumes from a broken coal heater. Buried them, but oh, wait, sorry, flooded, gone. Yep, they all washed away. That's weird. It was all the people we kidnapped specifically got taken in the flood. Yes, that one graveyard was hit extra hard. Yeah, the the kidnapper graveyard over here (laughs) got really hit by the, you know how those floods come in. They go right for the kidnapped graveyards. Absolutely. There's just no stopping them. Right. So more information came to light from North Korea about Megumi specifically. In 2002, Kim Jong-il spoke specifically of Megumi and said that her kidnappers had been tried and found guilty in 1998. One of them, and now harsh punishment here in North Korea. Well, can we say, though, based on these last deaths, are these true? Right. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? But one of these people was executed And the other died during his 15-year sentence. Now, I do have to say something about this punishment. I've seen another documentary. I don't know if you know about this or not, but um, for their punishment system over there, it was if you get, you know, caught doing something or whatever and thrown in jail, one, it's typically a hard labor camp with absolutely terrible, terrible living conditions. But two generations... Uh, from within two generations of you, those two generations are also 
punished and sent. So it's a whole... From your family. From your family. So it's a whole kind of self-policing deterrent system where you don't want to get, you know, sent there because your grandpa did something wrong or whatever. Right. Or vice versa. Right. So it really creates an internal kind of self-policing system over there. Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting. It's so scary. And also, it's a miracle anybody still screws up. I know. Because the fear would be horrible that you'd... You know, you'd screw up and then your sweet little grandpa would get sent to prison. Well, I think, though, a lot of the things are, you know, at least a decent amount. It's, you know, it's just kind of a government official or somebody in power decides that, oh, you did something wrong or my opinion, you did something wrong and kind of just has ultimate control to be able to throw these people in jail. Yeah. So, I mean, you can try your hardest, which... You know, we'd be trying our hardest not to mess up. Of course. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're already doing that. Right. And we don't even have the threat against our families exactly. here. Exactly. So, yeah, pretty insane. Jeez. So we yeah. were told that Megumi hanged herself in a pine forest on the 13th of April, 1994, on the grounds of a Pyongyang mental hospital where she was being treated for depression what a way to go. Gee, wonder why she had that. I know. Like, kidnapped, stolen from your country. At 13. Given a horrible life. Okay, I'd be depressed too. Mm-hmm. And this is her second death date. Uh-oh. The North initially claimed that she had died on March 13th, 1993, before finally declaring that an error. I mean, these people cannot keep track of their records here. And there's only apparently 13 people who were abducted, so... You'd think you'd be able to keep track of, you know. Only 13 people. Right. Come right. on It's now. not like there's thousands of them, presumably. No. So as evidence, Pyongyang produced what it said was a hospital death registry. Um, it was a form with the words, quote, registry of patient entering and leaving the hospital on the back of it. Again, very straightforward title. Right. But, quote, entering and leaving the hospital had been crossed out several times and the word death written instead. <laughs> okay. Creepy. Also, yikes. Yeah. Japan told North Korea it found the document highly suspect, which, no surprise there. Yeah, I mean, I find it suspect, too. Yeah. You literally, what are you even doing? This is like a child's document. Like, I- I'm you supposed just write to- death yeah. on the document? I'm supposed to take this as legitimate too. Like, oh, okay, you t- you give me a paper with like bunch of crossed out stuff. Here you go. Here you go. This is this is should be enough yep. for the records here. So another kidnapped Japanese woman, Fuki Chimura, later said that Megumi had moved in next door to her and her husband in North Korea in June 1994, two months after she was supposed to have died. Oh, my God. And she lived there for several months. So clearly, the death date was wrong. Exactly. Neither of them were right. Neither of the death dates. (laughs) Right, unless they were seeing ghosts. Right. So Megumi's parents at this point still don't believe the story of her death. Two years later, North Korea handed over Megumi's ashes And her parents had kept her umbilical cord, which is actually a Japanese tradition. And the DNA testing, bump, 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 didn't match. Thank God they kept that, though, because thinking about it from from the 70s, though, like, who would have known, you know, how vital that would have been to identifying or at least getting some answers that it wasn't their daughter. So true. And like... 
God, I've been saying for ages, you got to save that cord blood oh, because yeah. you never know when that is going to come in handy. It can make you a whole new limb yep. if you use the stem cells or it could do a whole host of other things. So save your cord blood, people. I mean, if you haven't PSA, looked into yeah. it. Yeah, PSA for everyone. So poor Megumi's family continues to fight for answers and her brother even met with President Bush in 2006, which is crazy. And unfortunately, Megumi's father did pass away on June 5th, 2020. So we're still looking for answers. Still don't know. It's a huge mystery, but just a giant lapse in responsibility of this government. I mean, I cannot believe that a screw up by this government and by these agents would lead to this horrible of a situation. Yeah. And it it makes you wonder, too, like, who else was kidnapped that we don't even know about? You know, how many other people are over there and what conditions are they living in? I don't know. It's just really insane to me to think that these people were kidnapped as young. I mean, like we said, most of them were in their 20s and kind of grew up and spent the majority of, you know, the years that you start a family, right. all that type of stuff over there in North Korea only, you know, the lucky ones to be then reunited with their families back in Japan. I just, I cannot imagine living through that. No. And it's just such a crazy, flagrant disregard for these people's autonomy, for their lives, to just pluck them out of thin air and just act like they disappeared when they had lives where they lived. They were happy in Japan. And to just do that is... So reckless and weird, but it was too weird of a story for us not to comment on because, wow, what an interesting thing to do. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. 